if everyone's predicting the same thing, it's certainly wrong. You may not know what's right, but it's it's not going to be that. <laughs> and so prepare yourself for, okay, if that doesn't happen, then what needs to be true? But I think the biggest one is, you know, I don't think I've learned the biggest lesson yet. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by CBRE. CBRE is the global leader in real estate operations, providing solutions to the world's largest energy oil and gas companies. CBRE supports their clients' facilities both upstream and downstream without compromising safety by delivering strategies that optimize operations, reduce costs, and risk. Unlock the power of your energy, oil, and gas portfolio with CBRE. Learn more at www.cbre.com forward slash EOG. All right, before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to ask everyone to support the show by taking a few moments to leave a review for me in iTunes. I don't care if it's good, bad, whatever. I will read it on the air and give you kudos one way or the other. I like criticism and appreciate any feedback. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGG and laptop hard hat stickers, check out the show for a 10 second survey and we will get those shipped out to you. All right. I'm sitting here today with Matthew Babin, Head of Energy and Natural Resources at Planetary Technologies. Matt, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Hey, Paige, thanks for having me. You know, I think there's two versions of that answer. The first one is what was my first exposure to the oil and gas and energy industry. And then the second one is how we got into it as a company. So Ooh, yeah, yeah, let's hear it. So I've been at Pound here a while. I've been here 14 years. It was 14 years last week. Before that, I was in the U.S. intelligence community Ooh. on Iraq. And that was actually my first exposure to energy writ large because you couldn't look at sort of what was happening there and what you thought was going to happen in the future without incorporating how energy was integrated into the economy, stability, instability, and the government in lots of different ways. So that was really my first exposure to it was sort of helicopter flights over you know, Beijing refinery in another lifetime. And then, you know, flash forward to, I end up at Palantir. You know, when I joined the company, our only business was in the government. We started this company to solve what we thought were the hardest problems and the most important problems in national security and counterterrorism and in defense. And the more we built software to solve those problems, we saw that commercial entities, especially large integrated commercial companies have a lot of the same problems that we built software to solve. And if you look at sort of the safe, efficient provision of energy, that's an important problem for the world too. So 2013, we started our first work in the energy space with BP. 2014, our CEO tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, can you just jump over and work on this for six months and help get it started? And the work was so fascinating. I just never went back to the government work that we did. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And, and congratulations on 14 years. It's a long time in tech. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> So you basically started it for the company. Let's talk about what the company does. Yeah. So we build software. That's, you know, I, I like to say there's a lot of tech companies that I think do a lot of things and some that do a number of those things well. We try to do one thing and one thing only, which is build what we think is the best software in the world 
to help our customers make decisions. So it's very operationally focused software. Again, the genesis of this was intelligence, national security, and defense, and really sort of two main goals there. One was how can you integrate you know, what historically has been two very siloed parts of most of these agencies, the intelligence arm and the operations arm. So these are usually, you know, think of every way these are split. They're split sometimes in different buildings. These people wear different clothes. They use different tools. They talk different ways. They sit at different tables in the cafeteria. But they're really aligned on the missions they're trying to achieve for those agencies. So one of the main goals was how can we build software that connects all of the intelligence of an organization, all that data, those models, that analytics, and put it right in the field, put it next to the people who are doing operations. The second part of it, which is intertwined, is how can you, you know, we like to say do both, right? Say yes and. How can you protect civil liberties and privacy and tackle problems that are complicated like counterterrorism? And I think at the time we started the company, you go back, this was the early 2000s, there was a lot of tech that did one or the other, right? It was like, well, we can put all this data in a database, but you're going to have to give up some rights. Or, well, we just can't be safe if you want to focus on privacy. And from you know our CEO down, there was a focus on, that's a false trade-off. Like you can do both of those things. And you can build software to do that. So that's what we do in the government space, in the commercial space. And what's so interesting is if you hold that as your foundation of how can you democratize this intelligence, how can you democratize data and models and put them in the hands of people who actually turn wrenches, who fly planes, who drive trucks, who stamp out car parts on a factory line. You can do really, really interesting things with technology. And I think that the advent of you know what we're seeing now in generative AI and large language models makes that even more interesting. But that's in a nutshell what it is we do. Oh, okay. And so when you say intelligence, you mean like terrorism, you know, people showing up like Greenpeace, you know, glue themselves to something, stuff like that. (laughs) I use intelligence meaning sort of data and knowledge. So if you think of sort of, you have raw data, let's think of an oil and gas example, for example. So let's say you have a offshore rig in the Gulf of Mexico and you want to ask, you know, what is a human intuitive question I'd say, which is how is my asset performing? Is my asset performing as well as it can? Well, there's a lot of different sort of lenses you can take to answer that question. One might be how many barrels am I producing today? Uh, The second might be, you know, how quickly am I drawing down on the life of this field? The third might be, you know, how much water am I producing that I have to handle? The fourth could be, what's the maintenance burden of the way I'm operating this right now? The fifth could be, how do I need to think of cruise and rest time and scheduling with how I'm operating this asset? The sixth could be, you know, what does this current operation mean for my carbon intensity goals and where I've said my company is going to be by 2030. And those are all questions that if you, you know, what we find for a lot of our customers before we start working, they have six different tools or maybe 12 different tools to answer each of those six questions. But they're all going to tell you to do a different thing. You know, open up the choke on this well, let these people work overtime, change this shift schedule, buy more parts of this particular valve. And so what we try to do is put that all into one frame. So Yeah, that's a lot, lot of, of variables. 
there's a lot of variables. That's a lot of different underlying data systems. You're dealing with real-time streaming data. You're dealing with you know documents and well schematics. You're dealing with handwritten reports of inspections. You're dealing with flight schedules. But if you think about it, you're dealing with one physical object, right? That's one rig. That's one person. That's one valve. And so how do you map all of that data into what we call an ontology? So your digital view matches your physical view. You can say, show me everything about this rig and actually see all of that data in different types. And then you can ask those questions of, can I produce more from this well? What does that mean as far as water? What does that mean for my facility? What does that mean for my maintenance cost? And then you can get people to look at those trade-offs. So you're still engaging in all of those different disciplines, but those people are now looking at the same pane of glass, that same screen, and evaluating those trade-offs and making those decisions. So when I say intelligence, I'm talking about all of that raw data, all of the understanding that experts in your company know that is in that data, those physics models that are touching it, financial models, all of that is what we consider intelligent. Well, when you said you worked for the government, I just go straight to spies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's understandable. Yeah. All right. So how does AI play into all of this? So in a couple of, of different ways, you know, I think there's one thing which, you know, I think when it first was released, it sort of looked like a novelty, this sort of chat interface of, oh, I can ask a question and I can get back an answer, you know? And a lot of the ways it was used were, I think, intellectually fascinating, but not that relevant to business decisions. You know, I think a good example is sort of, you know, I've written this email to send to a colleague. Can you rewrite it so it sounds like it's written by Hemingway? And that's fun, but my team doesn't need to see me write in the style of Hemingway. Right. <laughs> but if you think of asking business-oriented questions of, you know, have I ever been in this operating condition before? Or you're operating a refinery and you want to say, you know, what type of products did I successfully make according to plan when I last had this crude slate selection? Or I'm operating a terminal and I say, like, what are the probabilities that I get shorted in this pipeline historically? Those are all really intuitive things for people who are in those roles and doing that work to ask. But they're usually things that are really, really hard to interrogate different underlying technical systems to get an answer. And what we're doing now with more and more of our customers is actually on top of that data ontology that I talked about, giving them the ability to work with these large language models, not on the open internet, but in their own private secure networks. So they can choose what models they want to use. They can determine what data sets those models get to touch or interrogate. And that's really, I think, going to shorten the cycle time of people's asking of these questions and give them back a lot more wrench time to think about those scenarios, the answers, and what they want to do about it. So one bit I think it's just going to give is, is a tremendous amount of efficiency. I think then there's the second bit, which is how does it enable you to do things you haven't done before, right? You know, I think that's what we're most excited about. And I think that's what we'll be spending a lot of time on. Awesome. Next. That sounds great. That's actually a lot to take in. I have a bit of a distrust with AI. I don't know. I'm also afraid of the Boston Dynamics dog. So <laughs> I think when a robot looks at you and then tilts its head quizzically like a real dog, like you should be a little afraid. Like that freaks me out too. You know, I mean, I think this is a thing that is very right to be skeptical and a little paranoid about. And I think, you know, if you look at, again, the work we started in national security and defense, the work we're most sort of engaged in are usually highly regulated industries. So critical infrastructure, utilities, energy, healthcare, hospital operations. These are all places where 
regulators have a lot of purview and are going to have probably more purview moving forward. And so, you know, one of the premises of what we call AIP, our AI platform on top of Foundry, is no part of that should be a black box, right? You as an organization, you as an individual user, a regulator should be able to say, what are you using that model to do? Why does that model give the output it does? Who is holding this model accountable? Who are the humans who are interfacing with this model? Because if you think of things like, you know, imagine a hospital using an algorithm to determine, you know, which patient gets the next bed or who gets the next transplant or, you know, where do you send a fireboat if you have an emergency? These are not academic questions like, can you rewrite my email in the style of a famous author? And the governance of that and the decision-making process is really, really important. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, so let's get into leadership. Matt, what is leadership to you? Yeah, this is a good question. You know, I think my answer would be, and maybe this is sort of exposes that we're a pretty flat organization that's really focused on execution, is like the best way you lead is by doing, I think. And I think if you're lucky enough to have had like good examples of your life to learn from, you've sort of been surrounded by leaders all your life. And so I think you know, if you think of a sports analogy, there can be outspoken captains who talk a lot, but then don't sort of prove it on the field. And in my version, it's the opposite. It's you put your money where your mouth is and you show the right thing to do by doing it as much as you can all the time. I think that's the biggest component of it. Because I think from there, everything else you need to do as a leader is derivative of that. It's easy to explain what strategy you think is important or what goals are important by putting them against how you're spending your own time. I think it's much easier to build a culture of feedback if you can point out mistakes you've made yourself and then give people around you critical feedback to make them better and then map how what they're doing is important to what you're trying to do as a team because you're doing the same work as the team. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have an example of a difficult experience you've had as a leader? Yeah, I, I think. I think that I, well, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure everybody does, but, you know, your yeah. specific story. You know, I think one of the hardest things in my role now is, you know, I think software by design and by sort of like constitution, you draw very optimistic, creative people who want to build software, right? Your whole job is the idea of building something that's never been built before, right? You are going to create something in the future that does not exist right now. And you have to be optimistic about the future to want to do that work. I think one of the hardest things I have to do is tell people like, no, we're not going to do this because we can't do everything, right? We have a limited amount of people. There are more good ideas than time. And telling people no for things that are good ideas, right? Things that are aligned with strategy and then unpacking sort of like, yeah, it's good. It's just either not good enough or not good right now. And doing that in a way that makes that person more ambitious and more driven and not frustrated and disappointed and disillusioned, I think is, that's just hard. That's just hard, hard yeah, to Yeah, I can you know? see that because, I mean, you're shooting down their idea and that almost, I think in being in their shoes, they would see that as a failure to themselves. Yeah, I think you can, right? And so I think the nuance is how do you, you know, one, make sure you can have a debate about an idea and that's different than an evaluation of a person. And so making sure in your language, you're being very precise about those two things being different and distinct. And the other, I think, is like, how do you, and I think this came out of Amazon, actually, is this sort of quip about, you know, disagree and commit. In the government, when I worked there, without talking about specific things, like, 
there's a lot of sort of like disagree and then just go your own way. And in a big bureaucracy, I think you can do that. You're like, well, there's going to be other people in this working group and I don't think it's the right idea. So if I just kind of lay low, they'll find someone else to do that because I'm not supportive of it. You know, when I joined Palantir, we had less than a dozen people in the DC office. So there was no room to hide, right? Everyone had to be sort of full tilt all the time. And honestly, it still feels like that. So I think the other thing is how you can say, how do you build a culture of, look, we're going to have a very robust debate about these four options of which we're going to be able to pick two. But when we walk out of this room, even if you don't think we're picking the right two, everyone's going to be bought in on, okay, we're going to make these two happen, right? And then how do you move from the, there's a debate, then there's a decision, and then there's execution. And those are three different things. And I think part of your job as a leader is to give each of those the appropriate space, but then reorient the team towards like, okay, what are we trying to do now? We're not trying to rehash the decision we made before. We may evaluate it again in the future, but for right now, it's we're on the execution piece. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, it's all about timing, really. So what is your most rewarding and or favorite thing about being a leader? I think the most rewarding thing about it is when you see people then doing things that they certainly did not do before and that maybe they didn't think they could do, right? I think, and I don't want to, you know, I'm playing from like a beautiful lie in the fairway here to, again, use a maybe weird analogy. If you hire really great people, it's easy to grow people because you get like great raw material. Or maybe, you know, the better analogy for this group would be like, if you pick a good lease block, right, it's a lot easier to run a good asset. But I still think the most rewarding piece is growing people from brand new to, you know, running their first project to then running a piece of our product team or running whole parts of our business. And the length of time I've been here, I've been lucky enough to get to do that quite a few times with folks who are now running whole parts of our company, which is really awesome to see because you get to the point then where you can't imagine the company without them anymore. Yeah. They come in as a blank slate. Well, we hire pretty opinionated people. They definitely come in with, <laughs> with their own ideas, but yeah, blank as far as their Palantir resume. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. If you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would that be? You know, the other thing I think is important is like as leaders, you have to grow all the time too. And to grow, you have to know what you're not doing well enough. And I think it can be hard to get feedback. It can be hard to get feedback from folks on your team. That depends a lot on the culture of your company. I think this was really hard for a lot of people during the pandemic when everyone's, you know, talking faces on Zoom. Like feedback is hard anyway. It's even harder when you're disassociated through a computer screen and you can't see the way someone is standing or leaning in or leaning away. And I think finding whoever will actually give you blunt feedback about what you need to do better, you need to know who those people are and you need to spend a substantial amount of time with them on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. No, I totally understand that. I mean, people won't leave me reviews. So <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I guess they like what's going on here. So yeah, I, I definitely understand that. Yeah. And then I think the derivative of that that we spend a lot of time on here at Palantir is not everything that you get feedback on then should you try to improve, right? There's some things you should just stop doing <laughs> and you should find someone else who can be good at those things on your team. Again, I think this has been a change for me from my work in the public sector and the private sector. You know, career development where I was before was really oriented around, oh, well, we're going to make you up to a level of competency at everything across the board. You know, this sort of like well-rounded generalist in some ways. And we really focus more on sort of like peaks and valleys. And how do we make your peaks 
even higher? And how do we sort of give you the free space to stop worrying about your valleys? I think if you look at a lot of successful tech companies, like this is what co-founders, great co-founding pairs look like this, right? One of them is good at something that the other is pretty bad at and vice versa. And then just let them both be really good at what they're really good at. That's where people really start to excel is when you sort of release them of the of the burden of trying to get okay at something that they're not exceptional at because they're probably not great at it for a couple of reasons. Either they don't like it or it drains them. And all of that energy you can instead just put towards where they're exceptional. God, that's just entrepreneurship in a bottle. Yeah, great advice. So what book influenced you the most? Oof, that's a good question. I'm a pretty voracious reader. I used to teach at Georgetown, and one book that I loved to use there was, it's called The Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf DeBelli. He wrote a second one, or th- I don't know what number it was, but it's also called Stop Reading the News, which is a great read if you're sort of disillusioned with any part of our... And also good advice. News and media culture, yeah. <laughs> but The Art of Thinking Clearly is, it's like, you know, 150 one and a half page chapters, all about common cognitive biases in your brain and short little tricks that you can use to defeat them. Because if you think about it, like our brains are pretty great at a lot of things and a lot of things that they've been much better at than computers up until recently. There's things that our, our brains are still better at than computers and I think will always be better at than certain computers. But a lot of the way we think is sort of like hard-coded from an evolutionary perspective to make shortcuts and not make us think harder than we need to, right? Like that takes a lot of energy you want to save that energy for walking through, you know, the jungle and hunting your next meal. And so this book does a great job of sort of just calling out like, here's all these flaws that your brain will make. And here's how to keep your thinking very clear and rigorous when you really need to be, right? And I think that the other thing I love about the book is, you know, it it gives you a framework for thinking about, you don't have to be super analytic all the time. There's a lot of time that the shortcuts in your brain are just fine, right? They're there for a reason. And you shouldn't be spending a lot of energy on that. But how do you really focus conscious mental effort when you need to for decisions that really, really matter? And then what structured ways of thinking can you bring to those decisions to try to take that subconscious bias and risk out of the decision-making process? It's a thing I use a lot personally. I use it with our teams here. And it just sticks with you. And you can, you know, you can read one chapter a day, one page a day. That's pretty much all I can handle. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm very interested in that book. Thank you for sharing. That's probably going to help me a little bit with my ADHD. Yeah. Sounds really cool. So what's your most used business tool? Is laptop count? Or you want more specific than that? <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to get more specific, you can. Yeah, I mean, I live mostly in Outlook and Quip, really, I'd say. Yeah. Quip, not the toothbrush. I was going to say, what exactly is that? <laughs> yeah, you can think of Quip as sort of, I mean, I'll probably describe it in a way that they you know, someone from Quip will be listening to like, oh, you could give a much better description of it. <laughs> but I think of it as like, it's the good things I like about a wiki without the crazy bits I don't like. So it's a shared space, a collaborative space for, you know, project planning and calendars and building plans and a bunch of that. The interface is really simple. There's no distractions. It's easy to share. Permissions are easy. The mobile app is pretty good too. It's just, you know, is we- it more of a project management tool? It has that in there, but it's sort of more free-flowing than that, I think, than something like Asana. At least that's how we use it. We have just under 4,000 people in 30 offices. My team has folks in, I don't know, 15 different offices. And rather than sort of these email threads that become, you know, 
18 emails long and you oh, forget God, what, I know. <laughs> what it really started with, it's our main tool for sort of like collaborative thinking and discussion. All right, cool, cool. I don't know if this is necessarily applicable, but who is your most respected competitor? You know, I think the advantage we have in the work we're in, if you work with, you know, large government agencies, large, you know, IOCs, national oil companies, they have really, really good in-house technical teams, right? They hire really smart people. They are well-funded <laughs> sort of technical budgets. And I think they're also very proud organizations. They should be proud organizations. They do super hard work. Some of them are doing it for more than 100 years, sort of like on the leading edge of what has been, I think, some of the most complicated engineering feats ever. And a lot of the time, they'll have built things internally or they'll want to build things internally. And I think, you know, the burden is on us to prove why our platform can be sort of additive to what they've done over time, what it will enable them to build on top of, how it can accelerate those plans that they have. But I think that's the one that jumps to my mind. In which ways is your company better than the competition? You know, I think part of it is, you know, it goes back to sort of the peaks and valleys and the focus bit. We have built this entire company around doing one thing, building software to solve one particular type of problem. Now that problem exists in... 50 different verticals and, you know, dozens of different agencies and hundreds of countries, but it is one thing, you know, and so we're putting all of our treasure intellectual capital against that one problem. And I think we've thought about it in a fundamentally different way from most other software that's out there. If you go back to that mission of sort of like, how do you protect data at a granular level? How do you enable secure collaboration? There are lots of pieces of software that I think come from the specific problem back. So, you know, how can you build a model for rotating equipment failure? Or how can you build a model for pump curves or drag reducing agent or, you know, flow assurance or things like that? And we take a sort of data-driven view of like, build a very stable foundation of flexible data integration. Assume your world will be more complicated. You'll want to look at data in the future that doesn't even exist yet. And you need to be resilient towards that future. That data needs to conform to the way you think of the world not that your humans have to think the way a data table or a data structure does. And you're going to want to look at the interface of those different problems, not just at individual ones. I think we're relatively unique in thinking of those parts of the problem and how they fit together. Very good. Very good. So what's your most important lesson learned? Well, one is I'd say I'm still learning. I'd steal the you know, <laughs> the Michelangelo Ancora Imparo phrase from his deathbed. I think every time you think you've learned your most important lesson, you get punched in the face by a, a bigger <laughs> one like the next quarter. So I think that would be mine. I think the other one is, I think I mentioned earlier, like my background's in economics. Economists make a lot of predictions. I had the chance to go to a couple of conferences earlier this year that pull sort of, you know, people together in Europe or in Houston. And especially in Q1, it feels like everyone sort of makes predictions. You know, here's where I see the price of WTI and Brent going. Here's what I think things are going to look like. And I think the other lesson I'd learned is that like, if everyone's predicting the same thing, it's certainly wrong. You may it's actually pretty good. <laughs> know what's right, but it's, it's not going to be that. <laughs> and so prepare yourself for, okay, if that doesn't happen, then what needs to be true? But I think the biggest one is, you know, I don't think I've learned the biggest lesson yet. Very good. Very good. Because God's usually like, okay, you think that's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Guess what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You want to make God laugh, you tell him your plans, right? Isn't that the line? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So why is your role important to the future of the oil and gas industry, Matt? I don't know if I am, but I think software we build is. And I think, you know, what was interesting to me was that Sarah Week this year, Sarah Week this year. Oh, I was there too. I should have found you there. We could have done it in person. (laughs) Yeah, right? Well, one, it was insanely crowded. Like, I didn't remember it ever being that big. I don't know if you did either. I remember way before the pandemic, I felt it was. I don't know. I guess it's just because we came back from a pandemic and there were just, everybody was so excited to be there. Security was on point and very thorough. But yeah, no, I I felt that. I guess it was because I was over by the press room that it didn't feel as much. But, it, but yeah. it was striking to me how, you know, if last year it felt like everything was about transitioning and low carbon, right? And this was just after the invasion of Ukraine. And this year felt much more measured in terms of, you know, energy addition, not necessarily transition or referring to sort of like energy incumbency and then the energy blend. And it felt, you know, I heard someone at one of the breakfasts I was at said, you know, if last year was the party this year is where everyone's sort of like the hangover, everyone's sobering up a little <laughs> bit on like, well, wait a minute, this is pretty tough. And so, you know, I think software has a, a really unique role to play in that transition because there are aspects of the transition that are totally real in every way, I think, in the climate data and the science, in the goals that companies are putting out, in the regulations that are being imposed in Europe and the US. And all of the decisions and operations that companies are going to need to make to balance providing more affordable, more reliable, more secure, cleaner energy to a larger world population, that's a really complicated space that you're going to have to think of trade-offs and coordination all the time. I think companies are going to have to share data in ways they never had before to hit the SEC's rules around scope three emissions tracking and validation. I think companies are going to have to be much more efficient and faster at bringing on some of these very large investments that they're making in new energies. You know, I think it constantly boggles my mind about, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. Our metro system is not the best, but not the worst. But, you know, the escalator at the station near my house broke and they put up a sign and it says, you know, this escalator will be out of service for 22 months. And... I just don't understand that, right? Well, like, now there's stairs. <laughs> yeah, right? And it's like, you know, we were building a battleship every four months in World War II. Production technology, raw materials, all of those have come a tremendous way since then. So what has to change on the regulatory side so that these construction projects that are going to deliver more cleaner energy to more people can come online faster? What do those look like in a pricing scheme? Again, I think like, If you look at all of those challenges, those are going to change not just the way companies operate, the way they engage with their customers, the way they engage with their supply chain, and a lot of tech that's been built for companies to solve one particular problem isn't going to work to solve those new problems. And so I think platforms like ours have a big role to play in accelerating what that, let's call it energy addition, is going to be moving forward. Yeah, it's definitely an addition and it's an expansion. I don't think it's a transition because it's in my opinion that hydrocarbons will always be around in order for you to have whatever you need for the addition. You need hydrocarbons to make those things. So Yeah, right. And I think, yeah, if you look at it as, as an input fuel or an input to other processes, I think that's true. The other is just like historically, you know, 
America has gone from, you know, what, wood to coal to oil to gas. And none of those transitions have taken less than 60 years, roughly. I mean, my math isn't exact here, but now do I think bringing on these, you know, more renewables, more wind, more solar, getting into hydrogen is going to take 60 years? Absolutely not, right? Like that cadence goes down faster and faster. But do I think it's going to take seven years? Also not, you know, and so managing that, I think, and figuring out what can go faster and how to make those things go faster will make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what are your thoughts about telling someone about the industry that doesn't understand the industry? Yeah, I think you mentioned a bit there at the beginning there on sort of like how many things hydrocarbons are in that that people take for granted. My dad was in the mining business when I was growing up. And it gave me a keen sense for sort of like, it's easy to take things for granted that they just show up and work, right? You're just like, oh, I have a laptop. Yeah. It's like, well, do you know all the pieces of rare earth metals and, you know, copper and gold that are in all of this? Do you know how these chips are built? Do you know where they come from? Right. The same with your phone, the same with your car. You know, there's an ad during the Super Bowl. I think it was, oh, I forget who it was. It had sort of like everything that came from hydrocarbons disappearing from someone's life as they went through their day-to-day. Was that API? No, it was a midstream operator. Oh. I want to say it was energy transfer, but I'm not. It could be. It could be. Yeah. And so I think the first thing I would tell them is like, you're participating in part of this economy and this industry right now, and much more than you think. That's the first thing. I think the second is, you know, again, we're a culture of engineers here. The engineering aspect of it is just phenomenal, right? It's like, you know, you could make a movie about it and people would think it was science fiction, right? I mean, we basically did. They called it Armageddon and it was an asteroid instead of somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. But like the level of complexity and ingenuity for these projects and at this scale and with a focus on delivery and safety, again, then map that to for these things that you take for granted that it's just like, no, I can drive my car to the fuel station and there will just be gasoline there, right? It will just be there. I think that's one. And then I think the, or that's two. And then the third one is there's a tremendous amount of innovation that has come out of this space on the hardware side, on the software side, on the sort of like organizational side. And so if you want to work in a field that is on the cutting edge all the time, but where you actually get to see sort of like long run payoffs of decisions, I think it's hard to find other things that offer all of those at the same time except enterprise software. So if you don't want to do that, you should come work (laughs) building building software platforms. (laughs) Excellent. So do you have a favorite podcast? Yeah, I will admit that I have too many and my overcast just like fills up. (laughs) And I really noticed it when I stopped traveling a bit in 2020 because my go-to is listening to podcasts while I walk through airports. So I will admit here that it's not academic at all. It's more sort of my like release which is a baseball one from a sort of like baseball analytics group that I follow. Well, sorry, I figure I can't give a OGGN answer, right? Like I have to go outside the family. Oh, I didn't have to warn you. Don't say me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, well, I figured that was going to get edited out if I said that anyway. No, no, I leave it in. It's yeah. fine. It but, just makes me get a little red in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in my like alternate universe, I took my like nerd brain to go you know, do Moneyball for baseball teams. So it's a podcast that goes through sort of like, you know, analyzing spin rotation and pitch data and what look like outliers and what that looks like. And that was a good movie. 
the Nats aren't great this year. So that's my escape of like keeping baseball interesting. Like, hey, there you Houston, go. Houston, your team's good all the time now. So, <laughs> except I don't watch baseball. So I don't, you know, <laughs> I just, I don't like to watch professional sports. I like to watch college stuff. So, oh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. They don't get paid. So their heart's still in it. So, but anyway, thank you again for joining me, Matt. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about your company, how can they go about doing so? Best way is just head to the website, www.palantir.com. P-A-L-A-N-T-I-R.com. We've got all the information there. We've got ways to send in requests or questions, links to videos, demos, products. And of papers. course, you're also on LinkedIn. All of that. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, those would be the two best ways. All right. Well, thank you again. So that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.